campus. Um, welcome to Chillicothe Bible Church. We're glad that you're here. This is a, uh, another exciting week for us as we move through the book of Philippians together and as we worship the Lord together. Uh, some of you know um, that this past Wednesday, the fellow uh, hunters in the room at least know, or those of you who are hunters, widows, uh, know that this last Wednesday was the beginning of bow season for the local deer herd, and since it has been raining, uh, most of us have not been out, including me. Um, I don't deer hunt in the rain, it's just not that, it's not nearly that fun, and so, uh, but now that the weather is drying, I'll probably get out some, but um, when deer season is not in, one of the things that I have been doing is watching on the, off the DVR some of the, some of the uh, TV shows on the Outdoor Channel. You know, the Outdoor Channel is uh, where you watch uh, all of the turkey hunting and deer hunting and fishing and whatever you can stand, which for my wife is about 10 minutes worth, and for me is a slightly more than that, and uh, uh, maybe a lot more than that. But anyway, um, uh, since it's on the DVR, most of the time I don't watch the commercials, but every now and then I'll be kind of slow on the draw or... Uh, forget that I'm watching something that's taped and I don't have to watch the commercials. Um, and one of the commercials that's on regularly is one for a company called Mossy Oak. Now, if you're not a hunter or not familiar with hunting, you don't know who Mossy Oak is. But Mossy Oak is one of the leading manufacturers of camouflage, camouflage clothing and products in the country. Uh, they have millions of dollars in sales every year. And the ads always feature kind of these old country boy guys doing a variety of activities related to hunting. And they're all, of course, dressed in mossy oak camouflage, right? And they show, you know, they and, th and they show you, show them doing all this stuff, you know, whether it's planting food plots or hanging tree stands or just hanging out in their camouflage talking. Uh, then the, the idea of the ads is, uh, everything we do is related to hunting. Our life is centered around hunting. We wear hunting clothes all the time, even to farm. Uh, we wear our camo, you know. I mean, I don't know if you need to blend in for the corn or what. But anyway, um, but they show you this this scene. And then at the end, they have the same tagline of every ad. It says, Mossy Oak, it's not a passion, it's an obsession. It's not a passion, it's an obsession. And let me suggest to you, even though I am a hunter, that I think that if your life is totally consumed by hunting, you're probably out of balance somewhere, okay? And that the problem is not so much that hunting is the obsession, and, and in having an obsession, it's that it's the wrong one, that your obsession needs to be something higher and, and uh, bigger and deeper and more lasting and more eternal. And in this passage, we're going to see what Paul's obsession is. And I'll assure you, it's not mossy oak, okay? Um, because for Paul, knowing Christ is not a passion. It's an obsession. And it is something that, that orders and gives meaning to and drives all of his decisions, uh, his, his, his place where he lives and how he lives, what he spends his time doing, Every waking thought that he has and probably a lot of his asleep thoughts have to do with knowing 
and serving and loving and following Christ. So we're going to look at that this morning, and we're going to uh, dive into chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, uh, follow along here as we read together. Philippians 3, verses 1 to 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the, tri- of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, and as for zeal, persecuting the church, and as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own which comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now in verse 1, Paul starts off with, finally... Now, some of you who have been around a few preachers, uh, maybe even this one, have heard them say, now finally, and they got another 20 minutes left, right? <laughs> okay, that's, that's pretty much what Paul is doing here with his finally, okay? He's got another two chapters he's going to lay on you. Uh, but what he's saying with that word is, is he's, that he's making a transition to another big section, and this, this particular big section has to do with dealing with problems in the, in the Philippian church and what is the solution to them. And the first thing he says is rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. And, and I want to just encourage you with that. Rejoice in the Lord. Uh, these are pretty challenging days, are they not? I mean, you look around our world, and it seems like things are getting heated up again in the Middle East, that the economy is maybe showing signs of life, but it's still pretty flat. Unemployment in the local area is about 12.5%. Unemployment in our church is about 12.5%. There's a lot to be concerned about, right? a lot to be concerned about and that would give you cause for anxiety rather than rejoicing Paul says rejoice in the Lord and look back at what his uh, what the previous context is notice what I mean think about what Paul where Paul himself is he's spending his, his days under arrest chained to a Roman soldier not exactly you wouldn't think the most immediate context for wanting to rejoice right Think about what he's just said about his buddy Epaphroditus, remember? He says, Epaphroditus almost died. Risk his life serving me for your sake. Epaphroditus is headed back home. 
and Paul's going to be left with just he and Timothy. Epaphroditus got sick and had almost died. And in that, it's in that context where Paul is imprisoned and Epaphroditus is almost dead and going home. But he says, finally, rejoice in the Lord. Was Paul going through tough days? Yeah, he was. And yet, what Paul's point is this, is that even though I'm going through some tough days, even though one of you, Epaphroditus, who was a Philippian, have been through some tough days, even though the days that they're continuing to live in are tough, there's still reason to rejoice. Because all of the things that we are dealing with as a country and as families and as a church and as people are temporary and are passing. But the things that really matter are secure and are lasting. And so we can rejoice in, in what? In the Lord. Because the Lord has saved us and graciously keeps us and will carry us home, right? No matter how black things get down here on this in this life, there's always reason for rejoicing because Jesus is still in our life, right? Um, he says, in fact, he goes on, he says, it's no trouble for me to write the same thing to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. And I think he's referring to, the, to first of all, the fact that he uh, is talking to them about rejoicing. Did you know... the? The word rejoice or joy appears 16 times in, in four chapters in the book of Philippians. Do <laughs> you think this is something he wants us to remember to do? Generally, if you have something that's repeated twice in God's word, it's something that God really wants to underline. But how about 16 times in four chapters? We could say that that would be important, right? Uh, that would seem to be the emphasis of the letter. Rejoice in the Lord, regardless of the circumstances in which you find yourself. And he says, and then he's going to also, going on from here, tell them some things that he's already told them. and Because he, he's trying to safeguard their church. And the, one of the biggest things he's going to tell them is to beware of the trap of legalism. And it's a subtle trap. It's like one of those Burmese tiger pits. You know, where you dig that hole in the ground, you've got all those sharp sticks poking up, and you've got it covered with leaves, and nobody knows it's there until you walk along and step on it and experience the negative consequences, right? Legalism is a lot like that. You don't realize it's there until you step on it, and then it destroys you. And he's going to tell them, you've got to beware of this. He says... He starts off and he says, beware, watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil. Now, let me just say this. He is not talking about your chihuahua, your dachshund, your Labrador here. He's talking about people. To a Jew, the most unclean animal except for maybe a pig was a dog. Jewish people did not keep dogs in their house as pets like we do. Because a, a dog... Uh, was not only unclean, but they were a nasty animal. If you've been to a third world country, you know that dogs there are nasty little animals too. They all stand about yay high, have kind of pointy ears, pointed snout, and they run around and they eat garbage and filth. Right? It's not like, it's not like your little spaniel in your house. Okay? 
uh, you know, Fifi that gets fed farina and all that. This is just kind of a nasty, scroungy little runty mutt dog, okay? And that's what they had running around. These are unclean animals. Why? They feast on filth and garbage. Okay? And he says, out and he says, these guys are dogs. They're unclean. Why are they dogs? Because they're teaching false doctrine. In fact, the book of Revelation says that in the New Jerusalem, you know, the, 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 the holy city comes down out of heaven uh, with, uh, with God and is established on the new earth, right? And it says outside are the dogs, the sexually immoral, the idolater, the greedy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? The dogs are the unclean. People who are not believers, in other words. People who engage in evil. And he calls them also mutilators of the flesh. Now, these guys, what, what happened with Paul's ministry is that he went around announcing and preaching the gospel. And he would start first with Jewish, in the Jewish community, with, with people at the synagogue, if there was a synagogue in that city. And he would preach... Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the risen Son of God, who came in fulfillment of the Jewish law. And if the Jews there believed, great. If not, they would, he would go to the Gentile community and preach the same message to them. And, and in so doing, build up the church. And there were a lot of people who were, who were Jews, either uh, proselytes to Judaism, in other words, people who had been born Gentiles but converted to Judaism, as well as people who had been born Jews who liked Paul's preaching and thought, huh, Jesus was the Messiah. I like that idea. But what they wanted to do in addition to that was they wanted to ensure that everybody kept the Jewish law. And they, what they did was they mistook what was meant to be fulfilled in Jesus and they just tacked Jesus onto it. And they said, okay, well, yeah, Jesus is all well and good, but you also got to do all this other stuff. And the big outward sign that you were a member of the Jewish community in good standing was that you got circumcised. Now, that kept your membership numbers relatively low in most cases, right? Particularly among adult men. Uh, most guys are not willing to sign on for that program unless they're seriously committed to following, uh, following God, right? And so... Um, they said, look, you, following Jesus is fine. You can uh, acknowledge him as Messiah, and we acknowledge him as Messiah. But you also have to keep the law, and you have to be circumcised. You have to become a Jew, in other words, to become a Christian. And Paul said, no. Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf. We have our, it's not that you don't have to keep the law. It's that Jesus has already kept it for us. And you don't earn merit and favor before God by keeping the law like you mistakenly think. Even under the law, you couldn't keep it. And it was meant to show you God's standard of holiness that you couldn't live up to and to point you to the need for the Messiah to come. And now he's come and you believe in him so you don't have to be in slavery to the law. But they're teaching, no, you have to, you have to be circumcised, you have to keep the law. So Paul calls them mutilators of the flesh, and they would go around calling themselves the circumcision. We are the circumcision. We are the ones who really know God. And so Paul says, verse 3, it is we 
who are the circumcision. In other words, what's the circumcision that matters? The external on your body or the internal in your heart? It's the internal that matters. Even in your Old Testament, there are places where it says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you cut on your outside of your body, but your heart is unchanged. Here's one of Paul's points about legalists, okay? A legalist loves external appearances more than internal reality. A legalist loves external appearances more than internal reality. Uh, legalism is one, of, is one of the most subtle traps a believer can fall into because people who are into legalism look really good. They look like they're really righteous. And... And they imitate real and living faith in many ways. But let me assure you of this, okay? Those of you who have been to my office know I have taxidermy in there, okay? Some deer trophies and whatnot. Uh, legalism, if you get into this, into following external rules and valuing them above the reality of your relationship with Christ, what that will do is take your living faith and replace it with a taxidermist model where the outside looks really good, but inside there's nothing living. Beware of legalism. And the reason why, the reason why you've got to beware is that legalism, this is my second point here, legalism teaches you to love human qualifications more than you love worshiping God by the Spirit. Uh, even in the law, the, in the Old Testament, they, the law looked forward to a day when the Spirit of God would come on his people. And it would come not just to a prophet or to a king or to some anointed person for a special purpose, but would come on everybody. Remember the book of Joel? In the last days, the Spirit of God will come on all flesh. And your men and women will... will uh, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, and all of this, right? And the Spirit of God was going to come on all people. But these men, these mutilator, mutilators of the flesh, uh, as Paul calls them, are teaching people that it's not so much about worshiping God as the, by the Spirit as it is about what you do and about what you don't do. If you keep all the right do's and, and avoid all the right don'ts, then you're right with God. And it's more about keeping your list than it is about loving and worshiping and serving God by the Holy Spirit. And, you know, legalists always come up with a list of stuff they can do, right? Well, so I'm not going to go to movies. I'm only going to wear a necktie. I'm, you know, if I'm a woman, I'm not going to cut my hair or wear makeup which works out okay until you're about 25, and then you need to do something different. Um, <laughs> you know, still love what the old preacher Donald Gray Barnhouse used to say about that. He said, uh, he said, he said, women ask me all the time, Dr. Barnhouse, should a woman wear makeup? And I say, if the barn needs painting, paint it. <laughs> okay, but you always come up with your list, right? And whatever the list is, it's always something, it's, you always set the hurdle short enough you can jump over it, right? And you, 
you know, they, they, and so people in Paul's day would say things like this. Well, I never traveled more than a Sabbath day's journey on the Sabbath. I tithe even a tenth of all my spices, you know, by which they meant, you know, if you had parsley, they would get out their parsley and they would give the Lord, they would count out flecks of parsley and they would give him one in every ten. Okay, now that is a level of legalism that's off the hook. I mean, really, I would do it by weight, okay? <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm not going to count each one individually. Uh, they would say, look, I keep the law. I got circumcised. I offer all the sacrifices. I do everything right. And Paul would say, these things are meant to help you to worship God, not to serve as a substitute for it. And in the final analysis, a legalist loves rules more than he loves Jesus can't worship God because he's too consumed with working to gain favor with God. And, and he spends so much time working to gain God's favor that he doesn't learn to actually love and worship and follow him. And of course, you know, Paul has a reputation in case somebody thinks that, well, maybe, maybe Paul only thinks this because he wouldn't qualify under my list. Right? Well, Paul, you, you're, you're setting up a, a bad standard because you can't meet any other standard. And Paul says, no, let me, let me lay on you. Let me give you my list of all the ways in which I would qualify under a legalistic standard. And so he says, look here. I was, I was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, I, didn't, I kept the law with reference to circumcision. My parents kept it for me. I was born in a religious, righteous family. I didn't get circumcised as an adult. I didn't, come, I didn't come as a proselyte to Judaism. I was born a Jew. And my parents were righteous Jews who circumcised me on the eighth day according to the law. And on top of that, I was of the people of Israel. Again, I was born a Jew. I didn't become one later. And on top of that, I am from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm from one of only two tribes that did not rebel against the Davidic king like all the other ten did. It says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, it doesn't get any more Jewish than me. I'm as Jewish as, it, as the day is long, okay? You can't be any more, you can't out-Jew Paul, okay? He is, he is as Jewish as it gets. He says, on top of that, I was a Pharisee. And there were all kinds of different schools and sects within, within Judaism. You know, you had the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Qumran community and and he had the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were the strictest in their adherence to the law. He says, you want to know about Judaism? I was a fundamentalist Jew. Okay? I was as strict as you can be. And on top of that, as for zeal, I persecuted the church. In other words, I understood what the gospel really said, and I rebelled against it. And persecuted people who followed it. Because I understood all the implications of the gospel clearly, even as an unbeliever. And on top of that, with reference to obedience to the law, which is really how that should read, is, is where it says, as for legalistic righteousness there in the NIV, it should be, as for righteousness according to the law. 
I was blameless. In other words, you couldn't go through any of the 613 commands in the Old Testament law and find one thing on me that I was not obedient to. Not one, at least from the external perspective, right? I obeyed it all. And he says, but none of these things got me any closer. Not one got me any closer to being in right relationship with God. And so for Paul, Jesus is life. You know, for a lot of us, sometimes Jesus becomes like Sunday buddy or activity number 47 on our list of things to do this week. But for Paul, Jesus is life. It's not so much that, that, that Paul isn't committed to anything else. It's that everything else is not even in the same book on his list of priorities. It's Jesus on about every page, and then he has like another volume off somewhere that he's forgot about of all the other things he needs to be involved with. Jesus is at the center and the periphery and the fullness of Paul's life. There isn't anything else that he's committed to in this way. You know, Paul lives out what Jesus said, that if anyone would come after me, he must hate his mother and father and brother and wife in comparison to me. Paul is that level of committed. Jesus is life. Uh, he says, look here, whatever was to my profit, in other words, I used to consider that, uh, this is accounting, okay, which I don't really understand. I married an accountant. I don't do the books at our house, but my understanding is there's a credit side and a debit side. The debit side is the stuff that is charged against you. The credit side is the stuff that's positive in your account right and he says i used to think that i had all these credits all these things that would put me in the black in my relationship with god i was a hebrew i was an israelite i was circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of benjamin all these things i put them all over here credit so that when we ring up the total bottom line i'm good with god and he says and i now realize that all those things are not credits they're debits they're things that hinder me actually from my relationship with God because they're all things that are external and they don't have anything to do with my heart and all of them put me even in their wonderfulness put me way short of God's righteousness and in fact uh, in Paul's Paul says in verse 8 and what is more it's not just these things but everything I consider to be loss for the sake, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Paul have a house? Well, he had some place he lived, but it wasn't his. Did Paul have his freedom? No. Did Paul have a job? Well, when he was free, he did. Making tents to support himself in ministry. Did he have a family? Not after his conversion to Christ. He says anything. It, he didn't even. He couldn't even really claim his Jewish identity anymore. Because after his conversion to Christ, he was persona non grata in the, among the faithful Jews and in Jerusalem. In fact, he got arrested in Jerusalem trying to worship at the temple. He has lost everything humanly 
but gained everything eternally in knowing Christ. In fact, he says, he says, I consider these things rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him. The word rubbish there, uh, there's not a good English equivalent, but probably the closest one that's still relatively polite is manure. He's trying to come up with the most worthless thing he can think of. I consider all these things to be fertilizer for the sake of knowing Christ. Because one thing matters to Paul, and that is knowing and loving and serving Jesus and acknowledging him as the Lord. He says, compared to knowing Jesus, everything else is junk. It's a tricycle compared to this Mercedes over here of knowing Christ. Which would you rather ride to work on? Right? Which would you rather have in your life? I know which one I'd pick. German engineering or uh, radio flyer? I mean, what do you get? <laughs> There's no real standard of comparison, right? He says, everything is junk compared to knowing Jesus. And the most important thing for Paul is that he might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Real holiness for Paul comes not from obeying rules, but from faith in Christ. It's not obeying rules. It's faith in Christ that you get real righteousness. Obeying the law can produce a certain kind of righteousness. It can produce external obedience to the letter of the law, such that you do all the right things and don't do all the wrong things, and you only speak words that are kind. And you can, within a legalistic system, you can come up with some pretty exemplary-looking people. If you don't believe me, go introduce yourself to a Mormon. They are people who live by law. And they are nice people. A lot of times have good families. But there are people who live by law, and they are very far away from God. Because even in their righteousness, such as it is, they don't have their heart changed. And what you produce in obedience to the law is you pr produce people who are not obedient children of God, but you produce people who outwardly obey and inwardly shake their fist. And by the way, pride and self-righteousness are the two most common sins of someone who is a legalist. And pride and self-righteousness are just as much shaking your fist at God as any kind of outward rebellion that we might find is defined as the dirty dozen, you know, whatever is on that list for you. Whether it's, you know, well, I've never been immoral. I've never been a cheat. I've never been, I've never stolen anything. I've not murdered anybody, not committed adultery. I've not whatever. Like I say, whatever's on your dirty dozen list, okay? Legalistic righteousness produces people who can give you their list of all the things they don't do and all the positive things they do. But what it produces is self-righteous, prideful people 
And self-righteousness and pride are, again, just as much shaking your fist at God as all of the other things on that list. They're just as much rebellion. And Christ, as Paul points out, provides the only real power through which a person can have real righteousness based on a change in their heart rather than their behavior. In fact, he tells us what it is. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. What is the power that transforms you and I? According to Paul, it's the same power which raised Jesus from the dead. Are you powerful if you can raise somebody from the dead? Is that powerful? Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. That is power. Paul says the same power which raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that brings holiness to those who follow Christ. And he says, I want to know Christ, and I want to know the power of his, resurrec his resurrection. I want to experience the resurrection power of Jesus in my life to make me holy. And this is more than just a great mission statement for Paul. I mean, if you want to, to have a mission statement on your life, this is a good one, okay? Philippians 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. He says, I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. In other words, he says, I want to know Christ so intimately that I experience and my life goes like his went, so that when I suffer as he's suffering now in prison, that I understand what Jesus experienced. This isn't some sort of spiritual masochism. This is an idea that I want to know what, Jesus, what being Jesus is like. I want to know and experience all the things that he experienced so that I know Jesus better. And I'm willing to suffer. I'm even willing to die and suffer martyrdom for the sake of knowing Christ better. Because Christ is life, and there, everything else is just a detail. It's a footnote in your life. Christ is life for Paul. He says, I want to know Jesus more and more and more and more. And if I have to suffer and if I have to die, so be it. I want to know Jesus. And let me be clear. Verse 11 um, so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul doesn't know at this point in his life, like we know, what's going to happen to him. He is going to die and suffer martyrdom. He's going to get his head separated from his neck by the executioner's axe in a Roman prison. Paul doesn't know that yet. Maybe Jesus will come back in his lifetime. Maybe Paul will die. Maybe he'll die of old age. He says, I don't know, but I want to attain to the resurrection of the dead. And how do I do that? By knowing Christ. Now, as we close here, let me just help you think about a couple things together. All right? Some of you sitting here this morning may, may have come to this church and have joined in worship thinking that Christianity is all about do's and don'ts. That it's all about, well, these are the things that you must do, and these are the things that you must not do, and if you do and don't the right things, 
then you are right with God and you will earn favor with him and you will build up kind of credit and God will take you to heaven, you know, or like Father Guido Sarducci on Saturday Night Live, you know. Uh, everybody starts out with a million dollars and when you get to heaven, you pay for your sins, you know, lying's like a hundred thousand, murder's like a million dollars and if you don't have enough money, you go back and get reincarnated, right? That's what a lot of people pretty much believe is that Christianity is like that. That it's do's and don'ts. But let me tell you what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the world. It's how you spell it. Okay? Christianity is the one religion that is spelled this way. Every other religion you can spell this way. Okay? Every other religion in the world, whether it's Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, Tao, uh, you know, Native American belief, whatever you want to come up with. They all spell it this they're all spelled this way. D O do. Do this, do not do this, and you will be right with God, they'll tell you. You know how Christianity is spelled? You ready? It's this. D O N E. Done. Because it is what Jesus has done for us. That means that we don't have to do anything to be right with him because it is by grace that you are saved through faith and not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works that no one can boast that Jesus has done everything. He has brought you salvation. He has bought your salvation. He keeps you in salvation as you live this life and he will bring you salvation finally and fully in his presence when you die. What do you have to do? Believe that what God said is true. That Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners. That he died on the cross for your sins. That he was the son of God. That he was raised from the dead. Giving you new life and a new way of being righteous before God. Not based on what you can do, but based on what Christ has done. And if you've never understood that, I encourage you, I invite you, I exhort you with all the love of Christ to make that decision today. To give up your list of all the things you try to do to make God happy with you. And to recognize that on the basis of Jesus, he is already pleased with you. He already loves you and he wants to welcome you into his family. Now for the rest of you who have been followers of Christ for a long time, some of you have come to this church for a long time. Uh, you know that at the end of every sermon, I usually give kind of a pointed list of things of, that you should apply to your life. And I'm not going to do that today, not because there's no value in that. There is value in that, of holding yourself up to the light of Scripture and seeing where you fall short and asking God to help you to change from the inside out. There is value in that. But even in the midst of that, I want to be careful that we don't turn our desire to walk more closely with God into a legalistic pursuit, even as we're walking with Christ. And so this morning, I want to just re remind us all that our salvation is begun by grace, it is maintained by grace, and it ends by grace. That it's all of God and not of us. And that he is the one who changes us. 
God really does love us. We are already acceptable to him. God is not going to love you any more than he does right now today. Whether you perform faithfully or whether you're a, a variably faithful servant. Yes, we want to be faithful to God, but because we love him in response to the love he has shown us, not out of a desire to just grit your teeth and decision to do better. And I don't want us to turn what is meant to be by grace into another opportunity to live by law. Remember that Christ is life, and life is in knowing him. Let's pray, and then we'll take communion together.